about you, but that was exactly what I needed. I um, confession time. I'm driving over to church this morning, and uh, unless you have lived in my world a little bit, and some of you have, um, you may not be aware that there would be 42 different things on your mind as you're driving to church. And uh, I've got to do this. I've got to do that. I've got to get this in place. I've got to make sure this person knows that, etc. Right? And so we are. Uh, I don't know three or four minutes away from the house, and my loving wife leans over to me and she says, are you ready to celebrate Jesus? And I'm like, uh, of course not. <laughs> I'm ready to work. I'm ready to do all kinds of stuff. And uh, I think you probably have similar kinds of dynamics going on, right? It's just maybe a little different agenda and a little different to-do list. But there's a lot to do these days. Some of you... Um, we're a part of the progressive dinners that we had last night, and it was a wonderful time, and, I, and we enjoyed getting to hang out. And a lot of you did preparations and cleaned your homes and all this kind of thing. Uh, and even though we had a delightful time, it was kind of harried for some of you, for some of us, you know, to make all that happen. Uh, so, first of all, thank you for doing that. But second of all, uh, this is just the, the time of the year where that kind of dynamic happens, doesn't it? Uh, and please, I don't need one more person to ask me, have you got your shopping done? Because I don't. You know, I haven't even started the thing. So uh, we have this list of stuff to do. And we don't want to miss the heart of Christmas, which is to celebrate Jesus, to experience and enjoy his salvation to know the reconciliation that can happen between ourselves and Him and ourselves and one another, to have it confirmed and sealed within our hearts so that we know that we know Christ more than we know anything else. So that's what we're doing these days as we spend these moments reflecting on the heart of Christmas. And I need to be in this place hearing a song like we just heard and meeting with my small group midweek so that we're having these kinds of conversations uh, to help my compass not get crazy and spinning around and going in the wrong direction. Glad you're here. Hope it's working that way for you as well. Um, this is also the time of year where some of us kind of get into football. And uh, for those of you that are the uninitiated and absolutely don't care, uh, this is Tom Brady that you're looking at. He is the all-star quarterback for the New England Patriots. And uh, I had the opportunity to hear him interviewed on the CBS show 60 Minutes some time ago. And I have been struck by that interview for some time. Uh, I probably have even talked to some of you about it from time to time because it just struck me at such a profound and deep place. For those of you that don't know and don't care about Tom Brady and the New England Patriots, he is one of the most successful quarterbacks, not just currently, but of all time. Even though he is in his early 30s, he's uh, probably a shoe-in to be a Hall of Famer. He's been a three-time Super Bowl winner, two-time Super Bowl MVP, two-time NFL MVP. Uh, I could go on and on with all of his statistics and accolades and so on like that. And he... Uh, He's also a pretty handsome guy. So I'm watching the 60 Minutes show, right? And uh, Sherry just walks through the room 
while I'm watching it, she doesn't know who it is or even what the program's about. But when she walks by, she goes, oh, he's good looking. And she just kind of <laughs> just kind of kept going. Thanks for uh, dropping that line on me. I sucked it in a little bit. But uh, he dates actresses, supermodels. Uh, the man has made tens and tens of millions of dollars. Uh, everyone in uh, our world that values success would say, this guy has it made. This guy has arrived. He has accomplished everything he can accomplish in his field. He has great fame. Uh, for goodness sakes, he's not only been on the cover of a lot of magazines and has all kinds of endorsements and has sat down with presidents and had an audience with the Pope, etc. He's hosted Saturday Night Live. I mean, the guy <laughs> has had it all. And he's sitting there with Steve Croft on 60 Minutes. And uh, Croft is making a big deal of how much you know Brady has accomplished in his life. And he goes, but you know what? A lot of people say, hey, this is it. You've got it. You've arrived. You've made it. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. There's got to be more to life than this. And I'm looking at a guy who, by the definitions of our culture, everyone would say, he's got it. And he says, I not only don't got it, I don't know what it is. Now, if you'd had the opportunity to engage Tom Brady at that point, what would you have said? There's all kinds of ancient thinkers, philosophers, theologians, saints that I could quote. There are all kinds of scripture verses that pop to my mind that I believe are the word of God that I could share. There are all kinds of current thinkers and writers that I might refer him to. But when I'm listening to that man that, that evening on 60 Minutes, the first thing that popped into my mind was a conversation I had with a six-year-old. So, you know, sometimes we do this little children's corner thing. We'll invite the kids up to talk. Uh, I've been doing that kind of thing for a long time. And so years ago, I uh, had given a bunch of kids an empty paper bag, just a little lunch bag, on one Sunday, and I said to them, next Sunday, would you put something in that bag that makes you think about God and bring that to church with you? And when we have Children's Corner, let's open up your bag and see what you've got. So the next Sunday came, and we had Children's Corner time. They all gathered with me over on the corner, and uh, they all had their bags filled with something. And it occurred to me, because we're going to do this for several weeks, somebody might have a perishable uh, anybody got food? By any chance, let's deal with that bag first. And uh, Brian, who is six years old, holds up his hand and says, I do. And he gives me his little bag, right? And I open that thing up, and he's got in there a donut and a little, you know, round pastry piece that we typically call a donut hole. This is a six-year-old. And I'm like, Brian, why does that make you think about God? I know what donuts do for me, but what does that make you think <laughs> About God. And the six year old says to me, Well, my life is like that donut with the hole in the middle, and God is like that donut hole, and I need Him in my life like that donut hole in the donut. 
I mean, I could have sent everybody home at that point, right? I mean, it was over. Some had wished I had, but... What a profound moment with a little six-year-old, right? That's my life. It's got a vacuum. It's got a hole that only God can fill. That's the nature of the gospel, of the story of Jesus. It's so simple. Jesus said, you have to approach it like a child for it to make sense and for it to really be able to grip your heart. Now, because of that simplicity, because of that childlikeness that is true to the gospel story, the nativity narrative, if you will, sometimes we sophisticated adults are challenged to take the nativity narrative seriously. We're challenged to take it factually. We treat it like so many other little once-upon-a-time stories, right? Once upon a time, there was a sleeping beauty who lay at rest waiting for her Prince Charming to come and kiss her awake. Once upon a time, there was a beast who just waited for the time when a beauty would kiss him and break him free of his curse. Once upon a time, there was a frog who was not really a frog, and so on it goes, right? Once upon a time, there was a man named Noah who built an ark and filled it with animals. Once upon a time, there was a man named Moses who, when he was a baby, was in a little basket in the river, and a princess took him out of the river, and he became the prince of Egypt. Once upon a time, there was a boy named David who challenged and faced a giant named Goliath. Once upon a time, there was a little village called Bethlehem. Right? We can just get in that little storybook, fable, myth kind of mode, and the reality, the truth of the matter, can go right by us. The profundity of it can escape us. And so when Luke, the writer of the Gospel of Luke, got ready to write his Gospel, he was determined that he was going to allow the world to know what I am writing is factual history. And so he begins the Gospel, if you have your Bible and you're looking at the first chapter of Luke, he begins the Gospel to say, hey, listen, a lot of people have sought to talk about this whole gospel story in the life of Jesus, and I have acquired information from many witnesses, and I have sought to bring this to you as orderly, translated, as factually and as clear as possible. Fast forward a few verses to chapter 2, and then he says, so it happened at the time of Caesar Augustus, not once upon a time. But here's how it happened. It happened at the time of Caesar Augustus. Now, Caesar Augustus is, of course, the Roman emperor of the Roman Empire at the time in which Jesus is going to be born. It's like Luke is saying, here's my historical marker. If you want to verify and validate anything that I'm about to tell you, go back in history to this point 
when Caesar Augustus is on the throne. Because it's at that point he ordered an empire-wide census to take place. Now, here's what you may not have known. Caesar Augustus was not always called Augustus. He was originally born and called Octavius around uh, 63 B.C. And Octavius was a great nephew to Julius Caesar, who was the, the king of Rome at that time. And he had made a name for himself. Octavius had made a name for himself as a warrior, as a battler, uh, in some wars that had taken place in Spain. And while he is in Spain, as you know the story about Julius Caesar, some of his close confidants turned traitorous and they killed Julius Caesar. And when Octavius learned of the death of his great uncle, he left the battle lines and he came back to Rome. When he arrived back in Rome, he discovered, he had not known it, that his great uncle had named him in his will to be his successor, to be the next Caesar. The guy's 19 years old at the time. That's around 44 B.C. Over the next couple of years, he succeeds in taking Rome from a major city-state, a major country, to an empire. He is actually, uh, uh, Octavius, who will become Augustus, is actually the first emperor because Rome is now an empire. And because it is now an empire, he has to do this census because he wants to make sure he's getting proper taxation from all over the empire. Well, meanwhile, he is also successfully pressed through the Senate the deification of Julius Caesar. So that within two years, he's not only turned Rome into an empire, he has turned Julius Caesar into a god. And everyone refers to the late Julius Caesar as the divine one or as a god. And they refer to Octavius as the son of the divine or the son of God. Now, isn't that interesting in that day and in that time when a Roman emperor would be known as the son of God and the Lord God would say, hey, that's time for me to enter this world. Now, um, because uh, Julius Caesar had been declared to be divine and now Octavius is to considered to be a son of the divine, uh, they decided to, he began to just be tagged Augustus, which means sacred or near the divine. And thus, he, he's known to us today as Caesar Augustus. Not uh, very long thereafter, he began to have some health issues. And so he set in place his successor. And when he died, his uh, adopted son, Tiberius, became the next Caesar. And Tiberius is the Roman emperor during the adult ministry time of Jesus. And it's Tiberius's governor, Pontius Pilate, who will sentence Jesus to death. That gets us way ahead of the story. Let's back up. The point in all that is Luke is trying to set a context to say, I've got a story to tell, but it's not a fable. It's not a myth. It's not a legend. It's based on fact. It's based in history. And here's the context in which you can see all this unfold. Now, there are also 
some other facts to life that we need to take note of. Luke sets the stage by giving this one simple declaration of what is going on in the momentous event of the true living divine God incarnating himself and becoming a human. And he simply says in Luke 2.11, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Why a Savior? Why the Christ? Because of these additional facts. First of all, everyone in this room, everyone that ever draws breath on this planet is going to die. <coughs> Encouraged? Now, we don't have to get morbid about that. It's just reality. We're all going to die at some point. And here's what the scriptures say about that in Hebrews 9.27. It's appointed for man to die once. It's going to happen to everybody. It's the most common experience to all of humanity. We all die. But the scripture goes on to say that when someone dies, then comes judgment. Now, that little phrase is just packed with a lot of theological content. And I'm not going to take the time to unpack all of that. But so much of all that took place before the coming of Christ was to show us how sinful and broken and depraved and busted we are and how much we need a Savior. And so the Scriptures just simply say, hey, everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to face a judgment. And here's what happens at that judgment, Romans 3.23. Because everybody has sinned and everybody has fallen short, everybody fallen short of God's glory, Romans 6.23, the wages of that, the payment of that, the penalty of that, everybody's going to suffer a death. Now, the first death that was referred to is the physical death. But this death is the second death. A spiritual death. What we all deserve is that when we have that physical death, we stand before God and we're judged for all of our sins, and then we have a spiritual death so that forever we are separated from God. But here's where the Christmas story comes in. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Everybody's going to die. Everybody's going to face judgment. Everybody's going to be found guilty. Everybody's going to be sentenced to be separated from God forever. But God has given a gift. Life, pardon, forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Here's the second fact that we must contend with today. Not only are we all going to die but after we die, we all will spend way much more time on the other side of death than we do on this side of death. There is way much more involved in what we would call the afterlife than there is in this life. We've talked about that several times in here before. Uh, on the scheme of eternity, eternity past, which goes in the past forever, to eternity future, which goes out into the future forever, God carved out a little piece of eternity. Called it time. And in time, He created you, He created me, He made us in His image, He developed us for a relationship with Himself. We kind of screwed that up, we rebelled against Him, there was a fall. 
We took on a sin nature so that everything about us is broken and bent away from God. And in time, God incarnated himself and came to be with us to do something about that. But here's what we've got to remember. You may get 60, you may get 70, 80, you may get 100 years. Whatever that is, that's like a wisp here and gone, a breath compared to the scheme of eternity. Once you die in this physical world, you will go on to live in an afterlife that goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. Eventually, you'll be able to understand this little thing called time was like a dot. It was like a period. It was like a little punctuation point in the whole scheme of eternity. And so it behooves us to live in ways that we know we're going to die. And that when we die, the real longevity of everything is ahead of us. It behooves us to live with that kind of awareness and that kind of sensitivity and that kind of responsibility. Life after death is forever. The question is, will you be judged and away from God forever or will you be judged and pardoned and with God forever? That's the question. The heart of Christmas is God's merciful, graceful, loving movement toward us. We call it incarnation. Here's how Luke said it. A child was born. Jesus came as a man. Now, lest you get too fairy taleish on that, you have to remember, this is God's magnificent movement toward man because that's who we are. He could have incarnated himself as a cow, but he didn't come to relate to cows. He could have incarnated himself as an ant, but he didn't come to relate to ants. He could have incarnated himself as a dog, but he didn't come to relate to dogs. He came to relate to you and to me and he incarnated himself as a man. And Luke goes on to say, that man, that child born in the city of David is a Savior. A Savior. Now you have to ask, why? Why a Savior? And as one Christmas card I received one year said it, that if God had seen our greatest need to be information, he would have sent us an educator. If our greatest need had been technology, he would have sent us a scientist. If our greatest need had been financial, he would have sent us an economist. If our greatest need had been pleasure, he would have sent us an entertainer. But because our greatest need was forgiveness, so that we could be pardoned at judgment, he sent us a Savior. Do you know that Savior? I'm not asking you if you have an awareness, if you you have some uh, acknowledgement of the story, all that kind of thing. Do you know the Savior? Because to fast forward it again, He 
lives the perfect life, dies the atoning death, and then resurrects from the grave. He's alive today for a relationship, for us to know him today, not know about him back when. Which raises the question then, well, if I can know him, if I can have a relationship with him, if he can actually save me and pardon me and forgive me and and a new life come about on me, how does that happen? How does the donut hole find its way into the donut? Well, it's pretty simple and pretty childlike, and yet it's extremely profound. The scriptures say in Acts 10.43, it's like this. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Uh, here's what you need to understand, friends. There's a difference in believing, which is kind of like this intellectual assent. I get that. I kind of think that's true. And believing that so bets your life on it, your life becomes totally oriented around that. And Christ becomes the core and the center of who you are and everything that you're about. Not a little nice religious add-on. Yeah, I believe that stuff. I like to every now and then dabble in that. I like to every now and then go to a worship gathering or uh, study the Bible or something like that. It's not that add-on. It's If you've got legitimate, biblical-type belief, it becomes the core. That's what brings forgiveness. That's what brings life. And so, it's your decision. Will you believe? Will you receive Jesus? We've talked about it in here before. That looks like this. You admit, I'm a sinner. I have royally blown it. I can make as good a mess of my life as anybody else. And I admit that. And I believe that Jesus is the Savior. I believe He's the only one that can forgive me. I can't do enough good stuff to change the balance of good and bad for me to get a pardon from God. My only hope is that Jesus' goodness will allow the Father to forgive. I believe that. And I'll confess that. I'll confess it unashamedly. It's not a little whisper. Yes, I believe in Jesus. But I will allow anyone and everyone to know I am a follower of Christ. Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. My hope and my life are bet on Him. I'll even publicly testify to that by getting baptized in front of anybody who will come and see it. That's confession. Will you believe and receive? Let me pray for you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. So, Lord, you know the heart that is yearning and leaning toward you right now. And as they believe and as they bet their life on you, I pray, would you meet them where they are? Would you embrace them by your grace and your power? Would you forgive Would you save? In Jesus' name, amen.